0: Welcome to a bonus episode of Revis to Mad Men today So as you've read from the title of the episode This is not a normal episode of the podcast um, This is someone on Reddit who listened to my episode Analyzing Marriage of Figaro And was inspired to record their own uh, mini podcast So he sent it to me and um, I thought it was great And I really want other people to listen to it So that's what this is And please if you... Um, are ever inspired to do the same, do send it in to me. Uh, The easiest way is probably to email me at revistomadmen at gmail.com. I'd love to hear more people's thoughts. I hope you enjoy Reddit user Planned. That's P-L-A-A-N-D. I hope you enjoy his analysis. Let's get into it. I want to talk a little bit about the infantilization of men and the way that plays out in Mad Men in general, but also in Season 1, Episode 3, Marriage of Figaro in particular. It's an important theme for the series and this episode gives us a lot to think about. A lot of the questions this episode raises are about what it means to be a man and what it means to be a married man in particular. We see two characters grapple with that question in interesting ways. Pete, who's faced with a choice between challenging himself to grow in his new circumstances as a husband, or returning to the petty, impulsive, and childish masculinity of Sterling Cooper, and Don, who is thoroughly stuck in that childishness, who is unwilling to be challenged and who chafes against the way his marriage forces him to confront his own adulthood. But first, let's talk about the Lemonade because that sets up a lot of really important things. We spend a lot of time with it in the first act, and the way these characters relate to it says a lot about how they relate to their lives and their work. To put it in context, the Lemon ad was a real ad for Volkswagen, and it was revolutionary, or at least wildly successful. It used a grounded, down-to-earth style to present the product, and it leaned on irony and humor in a way that makes it one of the few ads, either real or imagined, that we see on Mad Men that still feels relevant today. Its revolutionary nature isn't lost on the show. It's treated as challenging, it's treated as iconoclastic, and the way these characters relate to that challenge is what's so informative about how they understand and act out their masculinity and their adulthood. The first we see of Pete is his return to work from his honeymoon. He enters the elevator alongside Ken, Harry, and Kinsey, who immediately start to rib him about his trip and the sex he presumably had with his new wife. This is really typical of the way that Mad Men treats the relationships between its male characters. They're often superficial and regularly couched in this sort of antagonistic humor. Men when they talk to each other on this show, especially in the first season, tend to tease and bully each other. They act like children on the playground, and only very rarely do they connect on a deep or a personal level. Pete, for his part, seems reluctant to participate, and he actually shares something personal here. The way his view of Trudy and his relationship with her shifted during their wedding. His workmates react to this with visible discomfort. Harry deflects with a joke, and Pete finally gives in. He gives them a very mild account of the sex he had, but he's still clearly uncomfortable engaging in this conversation in this way. If the interaction in the elevator was subtle, then what follows is a very bold statement about the kind of childish masculinity that the men of Mad Men embody. Pete returns to his office to find a prank. The Chinese family and their chicken in his office. The teasing from the elevator is repeated, this time without its explicitly sexual focus, but bigger. And we're meant to understand that Ken, Harry, and Kinsey are the ones behind it. We're again shown that this is how these men interact with each other. They're emotionally stunted and unable or unwilling to express themselves if their feelings diverge from a very narrow path of things that are acceptable to share. I want to take a second to look at the way Pete reacts to this and how this beat is played. When he opens the door, he doesn't appear shocked. He seems honestly kind of angry. He turns around and delivers the line, who put the Chinaman in my office, as this sort of perfect one-liner. It feels unnatural and a little bit out of character, and I think it is. I think Pete is playing a role here. Whatever his feelings are about the joke his co-workers have played on him, he's expected to play this role. He's expected to be the good-natured butt of the joke, to say something witty, and to let everyone have their laugh. He responds to the expectations of others, and they shape his behavior. We've seen how Ken, Pete, Harry, and Kinsey interact with each other, And a big part of that has to do with the expectations they face. These people aren't friends. They're in competition with each other, and they are expected to compete. Because of this, an antagonism shapes all of their interactions, and they wind up playing these childish games with each other. The fifth episode of season one 5G is going to show us that very clearly. That antagonism isn't the only thing that shapes the childishness of these men. The relationship to women and the role that women play in their lives also contributes. Let's think for a second about who works in Mad Men. So far, we haven't actually seen the men do very much work at all, and the women are working more often than not. We see this in Peggy and the other secretaries, we will see this in Joan, and we see it in Betty and the way she maintains the household. In Mad Men, women work and men play, And the men play very much because of the work that women do. The episode is asking Pete a question here. What does it mean to be a man, and how will he act out his manhood? Will his wife be a partner who helps him change and grow, or will she be his mother, working so that he doesn't have to? The vision of childish masculinity that Mad Men presents to us and Pete isn't a very flattering one, and I think we see that pretty clearly at the CECOR laxative meeting but maybe not for the reasons we might expect. Don, Kinsey, Harry, Sal, and Pete, again, wind up doing very little actual work. They smoke, crack jokes, complain about how difficult their jobs are, and spend most of the meeting talking about the Lemonad. The way they talk about it is important. The lemon Ad works on a lot of levels, and its inclusion is significant because it's real. We are not meant to judge this ad based on the perspectives that these characters communicate. We are meant to judge those perspectives based on this ad. We the audience know that this ad works. It works precisely because it's challenging. It defies convention and marries that defiance to charm and self-deprecation. It takes the worst thing that people were saying about its product and owns it. It's self-aware and it trusts the audience to know that it's playing with convention. When Don and the others struggle with it, when they reject it, they are rejecting its challenge. They are refusing to grow. They are refusing to reassess their field or their work. They act like children, choosing to stay as they are rather than embracing change. The only difference between them and real children is that real children have no choice but to grow. Pete arrives late to the meeting. He has a brief exchange with Peggy where he clumsily tries to express regret for their sexual encounter. Peggy tells him she understands, that it never happened. And Pete enters the meeting, commenting that she doesn't need to buzz him in because the door looks a little bit open. The meeting wraps up quickly after Pete enters, but he is able to express his feelings on the Lemonad. He thinks it's brilliant. The episode again sets Pete at odds with the other characters. It frames him as open to the challenges the ad presents, willing, maybe, to grow and change. Roger's rebuttal that the idea of 99 cents represents brilliance in advertising really drives home this division, as psychological pricing is older even than Roger, showing up in the last quarter of the 19th century. It's old versus new, change versus stasis. As the meeting wraps up, Pete tries to have an earnest conversation with Don, and the change in tone is like a truck shifting gears. The banter and teasing of the elevator and the meeting now grinds to a halt, and Pete expresses to Don that he's enjoying married life, that Trudy is a lot funnier than he thought, and that he's looking forward to going home tonight. Don's comment regarding his cufflinks that he was raised that men don't wear jewelry and Pete's reply that he likes wearing his wedding ring again reflects the tension between Pete and the other men. Pete, on his honeymoon, away from the competitive, antagonistic, childish masculinity of the office, has seen something different. Trudy shared something feminine with him. Something that he now wears and needs to decide what to do with. In contrast with the antagonism that characterizes his other relationships, Pete is reaching out to Don here, trying to establish a substantive bond, like the one he's now seen as possible through Trudy. Don, for his part, coldly rejects him. He gets flustered, or as flustered as Don tends to get with these sorts of things, and awkwardly plays with a file and gives Pete a non-committal yes that's really a no. I read Don's ruffled feathers here as being as much about his discomfort with the way Pete has just breached the boundaries of Don's expectations of their relationship as it is about him just not liking Pete. Where the episode goes next is interesting. I'll only touch on it briefly because it's a bit off topic from what we're discussing right now, but the next scene shows us what a feminine interaction looks like in this environment. Joan, Peggy, and two other women meet in the break room and discuss Lady Chatterley's Lover. This is another artifact from the real world. Like the lemonade, Lady Chatterley's Lover was challenging and iconoclastic, and though it was written in the 1920s, its publication ban for obscenity had only been overturned in the United States the year before this episode takes place, 1959. The women, in contrast to the men, are intrigued and excited to engage with the book's challenge. While they also tease each other, they also tend to help each other. They're more open with their feelings, and the woman who lends Peggy the book offers her advice that seems to come from a place of genuine caring. Perhaps she tried to read the book on a bus or the subway, and she received unwanted attention for it. Returning to Pete though, after sitting through the meeting with Rachel Mencken, he and Harry discuss the flirting and tension they just witnessed between Don and Rachel. They discuss what it means to be a married man, and Pete reveals that he didn't think Don was like that. I think Marriage of Figaro makes it pretty clear that Pete genuinely looks up to Don and views him as a role model. As if to hammer home the theme of childishness, Harry sucks on a lollipop through this entire interaction. But Harry has an answer for Pete, and for the questions that Pete faces. Harry thinks that Pete doesn't really have to change now that he's married. That he can continue to enjoy the company of women in the limited way a married man can. Pete's phone rings. It's Trudy. She wants to know what's for dinner. Pete has an answer for now. Trudy will take care of him, and nothing really needs to change. He can continue to participate in the childish masculinity he's surrounded by, and his excitement to return home to Trudy is replaced with excitement to return home to dinner. He makes a choice. He chooses ice cream. The show turns its attention to Don now. I'm going to focus mostly on Don at home, but I want to quickly look at one interaction between him and Rachel at Mencken's department store. Don's childishness doesn't look exactly like the other men at Sterling Cooper. Where the other men are playful, Don is sullen, brooding, and cynical. This might be mistaken as being more mature, but his relationships with the women in his life reflect the same kind of childish behavior as the others, and the same kind of inability to care for himself. Shortly after arriving at Mencken's, Rachel gives Don new cufflinks to replace his own that keep falling out. There's a lot of meaning packed in here, but I'm going to focus on just a narrow part of it. We see the way that women solve problems for Don, the way they step in to care for him. We've seen this a little bit already with Midge, and we can view this interaction with Rachel as a different part of the same dynamic. Where Midge has been dealing with this for what seems like a while, and seems to be getting frustrated with Don making her do his job for him, Rachel's relationship with Don is new, and she steps into the role of caretaker casually, literally dressing him. At home though, Don's life is very different from what we've seen at Sterling Cooper. Betty, unlike the other women in his life, makes a demand of him. This isn't an inversion, Betty still cares for him, she's up before him dressed and she's already made him breakfast. But here, at home, he has obligations and responsibilities. He's to assemble the Playhouse for Sally's birthday. We see him do so and he seems out of place, stumped and confused by the instructions. This I'm pretty sure is the first time in the series we actually see Don do work. And it's clearly a struggle for him. We don't see him finish, but he obviously does. We see him washing up in the powder room and flustered by its delicately prepared and feminine aesthetic, he dries off his hands on his t-shirt like a child. In the interaction that follows between Betty and Dawn, Betty very clearly takes on the role of mother. She admonishes Dawn for using the powder room, and in gentle maternal tones encourages him to go bathe before people arrive. Francine steps in here to joke asking Don if he wants company in the shower, and reminds us of the confused nature of Don and Betty's relationship. Francine muddies and complicates Betty's maternal performance by making reference to Don's sexuality. Betty is always both wife and mother to Don, never just one. The party begins and we learn a couple of important things. The other couples mostly have similar dynamics to what we've seen from Betty and Don, and the men behave largely like the men at Sterling Cooper. Francine manages Carlton's drinking, and Chet tells a joke that seems to mirror one Harry told earlier, that, ironically, given how much these men depend on the women in their lives, hinges on the idea that husbands and wives are in opposition with one another, and that a husband would welcome his wife's death. We see something else, though. Henry and Joyce. Henry in a yellow turtleneck and Joyce in a white and green floral dress. The couple who earlier told Dawn about the cute ad they saw react differently than the others. Where the other men laugh and the women stiffen with discomfort, Henry also grows quiet and uncomfortable, casting a meaningful and empathetic look at Joyce. He places a supportive hand on the small of her back. The episode has shown us something. Maintaining the kind of connected and empathetic relationship Pete briefly felt between himself and Trudy is possible. Here are two characters that have done it. Here's a man that's rejected the childish masculinity that surrounds him. Don wanders away and Carlton follows, commenting to Don that he seems to be well taken care of by Sterling Cooper, and asks rhetorically, we got it all, huh? Don, unconvincingly, replies, yep, this is it. As if deeply unfulfilled and still deeply uncomfortable in his own home. The show, again, shows us an interaction between women now. The wives, minus Joyce, have gathered in the kitchen, and in contrast to Don and Carlton's awkward small talk, their conversation is deep and substantive. They discuss their children, their husbands, and the feelings and struggles attached to those things. Joyce's absence here perhaps warns us that this dynamic is not entirely healthy either, and we'll see that in a moment, as Helen Bishop, the divorcee, and her son Glenn have just walked in, because that's what you do when the door is a little bit open. Helen Bishop shows us the way that the women of Mad Men are also bound up in expectations, and the way someone who violates those expectations is punished for it. Even though all these women have been hurt by the men in their lives and the roles that they've been forced into, they still treat Helen as the enemy for departing from her expected role. The party continues, and Betty places more responsibilities on Don. He has to pick up the cake from the bakery, and she asks him to film a home movie of the party. Don replies sarcastically, and Betty maternally chastises him that he bought that camera, and he always forgets. He sighs his assent and sullenly trudges upstairs to get the camera. As he films the party, he captures two contrasting interactions. The first is Carlton hitting on Helen Bishop, embodying the same kind of masculinity that Don has embraced. The second is a powerful and intimate moment between Henry and Joyce. They wordlessly kiss, set to Mozart's Marriage of Figaro. The connection between them is clear. Don looks on, aware that he doesn't have it all. That this is the thing that he is missing. Pressed to go pick up the cake, Don flees his responsibilities. Rejecting the demands of adulthood, he disappears into the night only to return home with a dog for Sally. A grand gesture meant to make everything right again. As Sally plays with her new dog, Don pulls her away for a hug, seeming to try and absorb some of the love Sally is expressing. She doesn't return his embrace, and she rubs off the kiss he places on her forehead, leaving his I love you unanswered. Don and Pete in this episode are faced with the same tension, a tension between the childish masculinity that they're surrounded by, and the pull of substantive, emotionally fulfilling relationships that would challenge them to grow up. Pete sees this through the lens of Trudy, who he felt a real connection with during their honeymoon, and Don through the lens of Henry and Joyce. Both feel the absence of something, and both try to fill it in different ways. Pete, in this episode, tests the waters of forming those kinds of bonds with other men, and Don who seeks it out in other women. This speaks very clearly to the tragedy of Don Draper as it plays out over the course of the series. He is self-aware enough to know that he feels a yearning for connection, but not self-aware enough to understand that it's his own behavior that prevents him from experiencing that. He looks outside of himself in search of things he's missing, rather than within himself to understand why he can never seem to find those things. Thank you for listening. I want to leave this with a couple of notes. As with any episode of Mad Men, there's a lot more material in this episode than I've covered. By all means, go back and watch it and try to find different themes, different ideas to pull out of it. Um, I think there's a lot in Don's interactions with Rachel Menken, uh, and the way that he always seems to be playing a role, um, whereas her expression seems a lot more genuine. There's also a ton to discuss in this episode about the way that um, these gender roles, that uh, this particular masculinity and this particular femininity, uh, propagate and reproduce themselves. We touched a little bit on how expectation and social pressure do that, but there's just so much to talk about in the way that the, the actual children, the, the literal children as opposed to the figurative children, are treated in this episode, and how that talks about the way that these roles are passed on. One question that I'd like to leave us with is... Um, whether or not the men in uh, in the Menkens meeting are always that incompetent, and it's it's only that they don't normally get caught, that they're always bullshitting, or if they just didn't care as much because they don't respect Rachel and Menkens because Rachel is a woman and Jewish. Another question that we should consider is where did Don get a dog in the middle of the night? We don't see it in the car with him, um... So it might have been there, and we just didn't see it, or maybe he stole a dog from somebody's backyard. That's it, folks. I hope you enjoyed the bonus episode. Thanks for listening.